to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about the future of events, what do audiences want? The arts and music industries are a dousing rod for the public physique, defining where the gaps are and where the water might run. The last two years especially has seen a cross-fertilisation of genres, audiences move to digital, immersive events, to events heritage spaces, forests and online. Creatively and commercially, what does this mean for the promoters? Good morning. Um, sorry for our delayed start. We're missing two of our panellists. One in true rock and roll fashion is on his way from Vegas. Um, so expecting uh, quite the entrance there. Um, but we have two incredible panellists for you. Um, so welcome to our session on the future of events and what do audiences want? Um, so I'm Tanya Harrison. I'm a creative director and producer of shows, events and festivals. And I will introduce our panel, or get our panel to introduce themselves, while we talk about what has happened over the last sort of decade, and in particular over the last couple of years. And I think what we've seen is a lot of digital uh, um, events. We've seen a lot more the rise from, say, secret cinema immersive events to the metaverse. So what does that mean for promoters commercially? What does it mean for representation, inclusion, accessibility? And how does that affect a promoter or commercially or creatively? I think ultimately there are so many questions about what's going to happen and what we're looking for. So over to the panel. Um, Pip, if you want to start and just say, introduce yourself and just say a little bit about who you are and what you do and then followed by Jock, and then we'll get cracking on the questions. Okay, um, so yeah, my, my name's Pip. Uh, I'm creative director for Arcadia. Uh, Arcadia Spectacular, we most known for Giant Spider, Glastonbury, big DJ stage, um, lots of big flames, stuff like that. Um, long story, but started at Glastonbury and, and created a couple of shows that ended up touring internationally. Obviously, all that stopped in lockdown, and I've sort of had a bit of time to reassess where I'm going with things. And uh, Arcadia's carrying on, but I'm also looking to do a lot more consultancy now and work with other organisations and help them really push the creative boundaries of what they do and uh, bring sustainability into that. And um, yeah, have a much wider reach than, than what I do just with Arcadia. So uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Pip. Jock? Hi everyone, I'm Jocko Callahan, and I'm the co-founder and director of Art Tangent Festival. I also run a small company called UBQ Live, which is an event and music management company. Um, and if that's not enough on its own, I also work as an experience consultant, which is analysing how to optimise the experiences that people have within events and entertainment environments. Excellent, that was very succinct. <laughs> um, okay, I want to start with sort of you know a couple of really big questions, which are. First off, you know, to both of you, you know, are audiences' expect uh, expectations changing? You know, what has changed in the in the whole sort of demographic, but also their expectations of what um, they want from events? What's your experience been? Yeah, it's a good question. I've, I think a lot of that is to be seen this year. I think this year is going to be the most exciting year at festivals ever. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and I, th I think the other side of the question that's really interesting is what is like a, the fundamental reason that people get together um, at festivals in the first place. And if you look back, it goes way back to sort of um, the beginning of civilization. Basically, has, has revolved around people gathering together 
And um, so it's really interesting looking at how those core fundamental uh, bits of our DNA of how we interact and how we gather and how we share ideas and stories, um, how that molds with where technology is going next. I think it's a really interesting question when you say just about where technology is evolving because it's also it's that has changed the sort of accessibility as well for certain people and it means that you can do a live event but also you know reach internationally i mean how has that sort of affected your your business or your vision of what you're creating do you think it changes the way that you create it you know you create an event um yeah, I think, I mean, the digital world's been really interesting. I mean, 2008, when we started Arcadia, there was a huge boom in uh, Facebook smartphones. Like, everybody was going deeply down that rabbit hole at yeah. the time. Um, but actually, we, we kind of became a bit of an antidote to that, I guess. And at the same time, people were coming to Arcadia, and they were out in the field, and everything yeah. real and visceral, and they could really feel it, and they could feel the energy of everyone else in the crowd. And... and uh, Actually, that really turbocharged us. And, we, and like I said, we were a bit of an antidote. So I think the same again now, although there's a lot more VR stuff happening, and it's amazing, and then we've sort of dabbled and explored that. I think the more that happens, the more people are also going to want the real-life experience yeah. of getting together. And, of course, those VR things, I think what really was interesting in lockdown was a lot of people did VR experiences that were kind of... It's interesting, the ones that missed the audiences, they could suddenly make the stages, the most spectacular stages you've ever yeah. seen in your life. And yet they were absolutely missing the magic. Some of them got a bit of the magic by sort of representing the audience in great big seas of kind of light and colour and they had all the cheering and the sounds and that created a bit more magic. Um, but we certainly find we do our shows and it can be the best show we've ever done. And we do the rehearsal on the Thursday night and you've no idea if it's a good show or not. Yeah. Because there isn't an audience there. And once you get an audience under it and they go... I think they're very different mediums and I think I'm going to pick up on the whole digital part in a little, a little bit later when, you know, Louis and um, Alex are here as well. But Jock, so your experience of the live event, I think what Pip said was saying there just about the magic of the live event and also, you know, what has that hybridity meant? What, what has your experience been? I mean, for us, um, we did do a smaller version of a a digital version of Art Tangent in 2020. But I think um, it's very much of my opinion that a live event cannot perfectly tra- translate into a digital event. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that they try to make, make those real world and digital world the same thing. And I think what you should do is design the real life event for a real life event and then completely rethink it for a digital realm. Um, because you cannot have that feeling that you'd have if you are squashed in at the front at a mosh pit in a digital world. So what do you then need to do in a digital environment to give people that feeling of inclusion? So is it something clever with the sound to give like a quadraphonic sound within your own sound system at home to give that feeling of being overwhelmed by the music? Or is there a way that you can pick up the sounds of other people when they're reacting to the music and play that back to people? Yeah. To try and, not to try and recreate that live environment, but to give a different digital experience. Mm. Now, this isn't something that we were able to do for a number of reasons, which was timing, budget um, and also it's not it's not our area of expertise for us art tangent is a no frills festival we are all about the music all about people being in the pit discovering new music um, meeting up with their friends having that escapism through music so that is something that i don't think we could translate into a digital world in the way to make it beneficial however that said i think you can take a live music experience um, and make it really 
a really positive digital experience. If you look at uh, Biffy Clyro, they had a really uh, creative set that was thought about where they turned a venue almost into like a stage set and they walked through various different rooms and every different room had a different experience. So visually it was really stimulating for people that were watching it at home, but the music was still there that people could sing along to and get involved with. So I think that is a perfect example of taking a live performance and putting it into a digital world and making it something new and exciting. And people are still talking about it now. Well, I think that's a, that, that, that's a really, really good point because one of the things that you've talked about um, is transformation through participation. And I think, you know, if you think about a lot of the big, you know, shows, is we, we've got massive screens. Often you don't actually see the performers, you know, visually yourself. You know, you're seeing them on screen. You may be too far away if you're at the O2 or at a festival and you don't get to see them. So that, that is one way where I think that we're developing that hybridity within a certain degree. Mm -hmm. um, I'm particularly interested in how that affects the sort of participation. And, you know, to touch on what Pip said, is how does that make us feel and how do we get that feeling that we're after in a live event? Mm. Um, how, you know, one of the things I, I, I think you've talked about as well is the storytelling. And how do you get, you know, often at a festival or an event, we're there just and we're chatting with friends and everything, and it's not necessarily that we follow the storyline or anything no. that you've prescribed. You know, audiences, you know, are, as you've said, you don't really know how they're going to be. You know, how, what's your experience of that, Jack? So my, my perspective on the storytelling and transformational experiences is it's about the power of participation. So the more of yourself you invest into something, the more you're going to get out of it. And by, by virtue of the fact that you're taking part in something, you haven't got to be actively in the pit to enjoy it. You could be watching it and in, seeking enjoyment out of other people, crowd surfing and things like that. What that if that event has been well designed, you will have a good experience. And that experience that you then go and tell people is enhanced by the process of storytelling. Um, and by telling a story, you're reinforcing your memory. Yeah. And memories are elastic. So the more and more you tell this story, the bigger and better that, that memory becomes. So, you know, the amount of people that claim that they were at um, Woodstock in 1969, if the actual number of people that said they were there were actually there, there would have been something like 400,000 people <laughs> on that event yeah. site. But people got so caught up in that story, they want to be a part of it. So the storytelling and participation is, for me, if you've designed an event well, the event space flows well with people's movement through the site and they have a great experience, they'll want to tell the story about the event and then the memories that they're, they're recalling become better and better and better yeah. and therefore the word of mouth advertising for those events become, you know, next level. The amount of people that I know that have been to Arcadia shows and just, you can see their faces just literally light up recalling that memory. It's almost like they're re reliving it and because it is such an immersive world that you're just sort of submerged in, yeah. that's something that they just have this calling to share. Do you think there's any key, I'm going to introduce Alex in a second, but just finish this point. Um, do you think there's any key points, you know, from that, that or key learnings that anyone can take away from this about what would make it better? What makes that storytelling or that experience? When you're setting up the show, for example, Pip, and what are the key things you're looking for to put in place that you hope are going to make work? What is it, you know, that you think is going to make that difference? I think that the storytelling starts from the very beginning of why you're doing it in the first place. Why are a bunch of you getting together to put on a festival? And, 
and I think that's the first thing you have to do is get everybody to sit down around the table and actually really dig deep and understand it because yeah. generally especially with festivals you find most people have got a drive that is beyond money they need to make a living for it but there's a reason that they do it and if you can understand that that is the beginning of the thread of your narrative yeah. <laughs> and then that grows through all the things that are unique about the event that you're doing uh, right the way through we try and stitch that right the way through to the narrative of the show right the way through to the materials we use in the show, the way we do the show, right down to the way the bars operate and the cups and the sustainable elements. Um, and I, th I think what we've learned is like 100%, you watch, sometimes you watch people, who, they film the show on uh, their phone, you can hear them commentating. And some people like, are just don't, don't give a shit about the narrative. They're just like, wow, do you see that? And do you see that? And do you yeah. see that? And, um, but that's great. You can see they're really enjoying it. But the thing is, if there wasn't a narrative, they wouldn't be feeling what they're feeling. They wouldn't be blown away by it because um, the whole the whole thing feels concise when there's a narrative and a reason and a purpose for I it. I think just in a way and it is what what do we think it, it, that we can enhance that that we haven't had previously you know that, that we feel that that, that, that that has changed. I think um, for for the future of events which is what this panel yep. is about I think there needs to be more consideration given to the experiences that people are going to have at the very early planning stages because there's too many people that think you can just sprinkle the experience on the top like the sugar on the top of a cake and actually for that narrative to really work yeah. you need to plan that from day one what is your story how does that work with your infrastructure how does that work with your marketing how does that work from the consumer flow around the site and if you don't do that from the beginning it's either going to cost you a significant amount more to get that right or the narrative is not going to be cohesive so I yeah. think planning, exactly. planning the experience from day dot alongside everything else is absolutely key to that storytelling, memory recall, and creating that opportunity for active participation. I think that's a really good point actually where I can introduce Alex. So welcome to Alex. Um, Alex, do you want to just um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and I'm gonna then pick up that question with you. Um, so I'm Alex, I'm a live music promoter at Live Nation Metropolis Music. Um, I work with artists on tours and contacts across the UK. I've been doing that for about four years now. Um, prior to that I used to be a programmer, um, so I'd work at different venues programming their live events, um, mainly acoustic kind of stuff, but I was doing that for about five years and um, I've always been in music, so that's what I do, that's what I like. Excellent. Okay, sorry, I've put my headphones on. I can't hear you as well over there. Um, so we want to ask you about that consumer experience and about, you know, Jock mentioned about, you know, beginning that right from the get-go. What do you, because that's something that, you know, you've talked about and what you do and bring to the fore about that inclusivity and also accessibility to events. How do you do that when you're realising your event? What tips, you know, or what things have you learned that would be helpful for people here? Um, well, things that we've considered are, um, in terms of accessibility, like how do people with maybe invisible disabilities, um, do they have accessible toilets as their um, staff members who are trained and maybe people who have diabetes or sickle cell, things like that we have to consider from the beginning because those things aren't necessarily able to, we're not able to see them on first hand when meeting people. We also consider venues have ramps and things like that for like wheelchair users and people who use Zimmer frames. Um, and like these guys are saying, we have to consider them right from the jump because it's just, 
it makes our events more and our tours more inclusive. Um, tips I would give is just go through, um, if you have like any kind of mailing lists or questionnaires, I definitely recommend adding like a question to do with accessibility and seeing what your consumers actually want from you and what's actually going on in like the world and, and just knowing what people are going through because it's really helpful just to know, you know, things that you wouldn't consider on a daily basis. Like for someone like myself, um, I suffer with arthritis and sometimes just getting upstairs is really hard. And just, you know, going to gigs, like, you know, certain venues have so many stairs and don't have a lift for someone like myself and it's, it's not something they would consider. So. We do consider that when we're putting on tours, like how accessible is the venue and is the artist aware that, you know, maybe there's limitations to certain venues that they might want to do. So it's definitely, you know, just having that open communication and just speaking to agents and managers and just letting them know what's available. And do you think that that it has been responsive? Because I think, um, do you, you know, are venues responsible, are promoters responsible? Because often I've felt that a lot, it's the responsibility has fallen to the artist, um, where all of the questions are directed or criticisms are directed at the artist, um, or the, you know, and the responser, the responser, the promoter hasn't necessarily wanted, you know, to take that on board because there are, you know, financial um, implications for that. And I think, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping things are changing, but what's your experience about that? Um, in my opinion, I think, can you guys hear me? Um, I think things are slowly changing. Um, I do believe the responsibility falls on us all. It's um, the, the artist always gets the slack because they are public facing and you know you don't get to see who's behind the scenes, maybe rooting the tours, the assistants. You don't get to see all of that kind of stuff so they don't know who to direct their, you know, their frustrations and questions to. So, but I do think it falls on um, the responsibility of the promoter as well, like just to make sure that we are asking these questions. It falls on the responsibility of the venue to make sure that their, their venue's up to scratch, you know, where is the funding going? How, we, how can things be more cost effective, but also be accessible? I think it's the responsibility of the artist to think, okay, I've got fans who may, who have different capabilities and, you know, how am I facilitating that? I think it's a, a point, you know, sort of a code of conduct or a kind of a, around principles of how we behave and, you know, where those responsibilities fall. And I think that's something actually, Pip, that you, you and I have talked about just about um, and that you have in mission, you know, with Arcadia, which is about, you know, sustainability, responsibility for the audience as well as the artist, the promoter. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know you've got some big kind of projects happening. Um, and I also want you to touch upon, you know, touring internationally and sustainable, sustainability, about that, what, what that means. Okay. So, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, future of events, that's what has changed massively in lockdown. Uh, certainly, certainly for me, things that were kind of important in the... In, you know, in the outskirts are now absolutely core. Going forwards environmentally, just changing the way we do things is, is, is a must. And I think everybody is on that kind of vibe a lot more than they were before. Uh, so for us, touring became a big thing. I mean, we made everything out recycled materials. We were using recycled biofuels. All our narratives were, were around sustainability. Uh, we were doing like European Green Capital Awards and things like that in the UK. And then we had an opportunity to tour that show. And we did tour it, we felt it was a really positive thing to take around to other cultures and see how they responded to it. Um, but I mean, 
really, look at, looking at it now, 50 flights, five shipping containers, constantly going around the world. It's just absolutely crazy. And actually, it was amazing to see, this is what I was saying at the beginning, the things that are like, deep in our DNA about why we do festivals and gatherings. That's what we learned from that trip, because we went to all these different cultures all around the world, and we really saw the bits that just resonated with everyone immediately. I mean, we used to do, like in Bangkok, we did a big show for all the people that lived in the slums around the place that we'd done the, the venue was at. We did a big opening show for them on a Thursday night and they all just connected with it in exactly the same way as all the trendy kids in Miami and everywhere else we've been. So, um, so we definitely learned a lot from it. But in hindsight, looking at our tour, it was kind of almost slightly colonial in the sense of us taking our, our British festival spirit out there and like showing it to all these cultures. Uh, although it's kind of inclusive and I think where we're at now is all these places we've been trying to really network in that country. Who are the creatives yeah. doing stuff? What's happening out there? How can we take the experience we've got and go out with a few people and work with the teams on the ground there? And, and what have they got to build with? And what, um, what industrial machinery have they got that they can yeah. repurpose? And what is their narrative? You know, what is their, um, what's the youth of their country? What do they want to get through in their shows? And, Definitely, you know, is more inclusive. I think if you're going global, but you go local and employing artists or, or you know, um, you, you know, skills and teams across there, and it also affects our sustainable model and carbon footprint. But it is one of those things I think which absolutely should be done. But it's also you get you, you you've prepared your show, you've got your team here, and to translate that can, can be quite challenging but also with the ambition of being you know green and sustainable and I think in my experience I think it's been what you want to do and what is actually achievable with the contractors that you're working with is not always achievable it's like you can have well, like a green you know you can say I want I want this to all be sustainable and green and then you're like but I want this massive stage and you've got to have a massive generator and but this is a whole the whole thing about the whole green movement is it's a conversation yeah there, there's some very clever people that can help advise but there isn't really a right and a wrong everybody's got their own sort of priorities and and you know every, everything does have an, an impact there's a lot of people in the world and we consume a lot of resources and, and mm. It's all about having that conversation. I think with festivals and events, if you've got a fan base, it's about opening that conversation with your audience and just being really honest and on the surface and trying other ways of doing things and really understanding what the things... We have a massive thing with our flames because even though they're usually from biofuels, they still consume a huge amount of energy, but then it's, you have to weigh out the priorities, like the amount of joy and the amount of people that come together and enjoy these experiences for the flames. Um, versus doing a festival that's 100 miles away instead of 50 miles away from the, the town that it's, yeah. it's aimed for, the fuel consumption of the people driving 100 miles away compared to going local is massive. So, but you don't necessarily see that fuel consumption because it's behind. So you have to open up all these conversations and, and, and engage people in, in where those priorities are. I'm just going to bring you back to that local point. And I think um, mm. it's um, just on that and about that experience, about what we want to enjoy. But it's also how sometimes we come in, you know, you deliver your big show, you leave all of the, mm. <laughs> all of the detritus, everything, everything is disrupted in that local area. What are they getting out of it? Is there anything that we can do better? You know, for, and particularly when a lot of, say, big festivals and events, you know, we're going on to farmland, we're going in, in, into areas which, you know, 
how is that affecting you know that their, their, their farming and their you know which ultimately there's a, there's many many questions around that and, and about what we're doing to the land and pollution mm. so well this has to be the future i think the future has to be uh, festival sites local to the cities that the that the audience is there for and more permanent festival sites so you're not shipping in all your generators and all your infrastructure and all that sort of stuff so you're actually putting it in the ground and and doing it properly from the beginning um, yeah, I just wanted you to sort of say a bit more about the project that you were doing, possibly in Miami, and about uh, you know, and about or working, um, I think you know, with farmers, and about you've got a whole kind of policy or new model, which I think is quite interesting for everyone to just hear about about that uh, revenue streams, which obviously is something I think is very important to promoters, um, but also that sustainable mission. Ambition. So you're talking about the UK festival site. Well, either really, yeah. or what you're you're okay. doing. What can you what can you do that that which is is beneficial not only just for you know this moment in magical time, yeah. but for for future, and for all of those participants or stakeholders. Yeah. Well, we're one of our projects is we're partnering with a festival, very small festival at the moment, but we're starting from the ground up, uh, and. The partner is the landowner. He started a regenerative farm, and we're designing the festival to work with all the cycles of all the different crops that are planted and the way that he farms uh, the animals that he farms there, and trying to integrate the festival within that. We're trying to build as much infrastructure as we can at the moment, so we're on green electricity tariffs, but in time we'll put wind turbines up, things like that. Um, and we're trying to, there's an organic, it's an organic farm, so we're trying to make sure that the, far, the food that's produced is for the people that come to the festival, and then we're really, all of our marketing and all of our targeting is absolutely local, just to the Bristol area, just trying to make it for Bristol people. And it's a, it's a bit of a kind of pilot. Yeah. Um, and then the idea isn't to tour that, but the idea is to take the knowledge from that to other festival sites near other cities and try and build off of that. Yeah, thank you. And how do you sort of cross-fertilise those ideas and that, 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 you know, from, say, like... I think we've learned a lot from brand experiences and pop-ups and you know there's multiple ways for us to learn from other parts of the industry mm. is there anything jock that you can sort of tell us that you you've learned that you would change and you, you would do differently for going future forward the the farm where our tangent takes place the farmers are very active um he's a world the, the guy who owns the farm is a world sheep shearing champion <laughs> but he does it with handheld shears not electric shears um None of our toilet waste leaves the site. We have a reed bed system, so all of the toilet waste and shower waste gets filtered through this basically giant lake with different levels of reeds to the point where the water that comes out the end is actually grey water, which is good enough for them to put in the animals' troughs. Um, the recent conversation I've been having with the farmer is there's a big push in uh, the Mendip council area to try, and, to try and enhance awareness around farming and the importance of farming and the sustainability of farming, and that's where our food comes from. So I'm speaking with the farmer at the moment to try and um, put some initiatives in place whereby um, we increase awareness around the farm by including you know, stories about the farm in our mail outs or the odd post about the farm. Um, but also one of the conversations we're having at the moment is can you pay to plant a tree on the Mendips as part of your ticket? So think of it like a booking fee for, for an extra fiver you can plant a tree in the Mendips, um, which is a Fernhill farm tree or an Arctangent tree. Uh, but the farmer's also quite keen with the farming um, methodology now. It used to be that you had to strip all your fences out, all your hedges gone, and have 
masses of open space, whereas now putting those hedgerows back in is good for the wildlife. Mm. Our farmer's quite keen that we plant a small forest in the middle of our campsite and that the audience can see that forest grow and come back every year and know that they were possibly the person that paid for that tree and it becomes like a draw. And there could be several of them dotting around the campsite and people go and camp under their own tree every year. Um, but there's, there's some obvious sustainability models that we're trying to, to do as well. Um, you know, we discourage people from using uh, single-use tents. We have um, coach operators that bring people in from all over the country. We make sure that all of our merchandise is organically sourced and uses vegan-friendly inks, um, a re reusable cut process. You know, th there's nothing out of the ordinary there. There's lots of festivals doing that. But I think to support what Pip was saying, like, it is about that bigger conversation. And if our audience are aware that that's what we're trying to do, they might understand why they have to switch their cups every time they get a drink, or they might have ideas about what they would like to do to help keep the farm sustainable. Um, the farmers as well, we tend to buy some, I'm not a meat eater, but um, we tend to buy some, farm, uh, some meat from the farmers to feed the crew. So, you know, the only carbon footprint that that animal has is the transportation from the farm to the slaughterhouse, which is a few miles down the road. You know, you couldn't get more local than that. So. There's, there's lots of things that we're doing. I, I mean, arguably the greenest way to run a festival is not to run it at all. Um, but, you know, people need, especially after the last couple of years, people need that escapism. People need to go wild in a field for a few days and just mm. be, in, be surrounded by greenery, not by concrete. So you've, yeah. got, you've got to find for your own event what that, what that offset is. I think it's, it, but also just to pick up with you, Alex, because, um, you know, you primarily work in touring as opposed to, you know, festivals. And I think, I wonder what the impact there is and about, you know, Jock has mentioned about, you know, participation and getting the audience involved so that they have like, like an ownership o over the events. And I think you kind of, that's something that you've really tried to do to encourage like that audience conversation. If you can tell us a little bit more about that and about what, you know, what's worked for you or also what's been challenging? Um, what's worked for me in terms of, like, we just have open dialogue and that's, that's just what I lead with, like, especially when it comes to events because you have to know what the people want, so it doesn't make sense to not have that just, you know, back and forth, like, we're providing a service and they're, they're coming as audience members to enjoy that service, so it doesn't make sense to not speak to them and that's, that's what I do, but to like follow on from like your question in terms of what's worked for me what in what capacity well I, I kind of think that one of the things in that audience you know they're obviously giving you you mentioned that they were criticizing or kind of you know they want somewhere to sort of come out and I think as the experience for audiences changes what they want and what they expect I think you know, sort of traditional shows has really shifted. Yeah. And what, what do you think that you, you're getting back from the audience that they're asking for? And are artists able to accommodate that? <laughs> so a lot of people, um, you know, over the last two years, we've been doing um, quite a few online events and things that are just live streamed through like YouTube and various other like VR platforms. That's something that we're finding that our audience members like, and we want to try and incorporate that into uh, our live events also. So that's something that we're just playing with, and um, it, it's a trial and error kind of experience, but it is working, and the technology is getting better and better every day. So we're just 
working out how to best deliver that kind of service, like a hybrid kind of thing, because that also helps with accessibility, and that's that's something that we're we're definitely trying to work on. You know, people who can't make it physically to the events, how else can they be involved, and and at what cost does that come? So that's something that we're working on, and um, you should see more of in the future. See, it's an interesting thing because ultimately gaming like has a huge sort of consumer agency. You know, you, you're very much in control of the world and of where you're going and what you want to do. And I think that's that's been raised. I mean, there's been sort of, I think, with the whole conversations around the metaverse and the cross-fertilization of music with gaming, you know, say like Travis Scott or, or, or whatever, but that is something which is a burgeoning kind of market. And I wonder if that's you know, something that you feel is such a massive shift from where, where you've been and also what the opportunities are for you to take those on board or does it feel like it's just a huge leap at the moment, you know, because you were talking about technology and where it's developed but and a lot of that comes from gaming, but how far do we have to go, you know, say for example in music to get there? I mean, I know nothing about gaming, but I know it's a massive industry and we look after um, an artist called KSI and he's definitely made that crossover from like the gaming industry to the music industry and he's got so many fans, but he's executed both of those things like so well and that's something that I think he's actually setting a blueprint to be, to be quite honest and I think a lot of people are going to follow in that. I mean, you've got... Um, other entertainers such as like Chunks and Philly who participate in the YouTube world and they're, they're amazing at that but also making the crossover into music and um, delivering that service as well and seeing how best they can service their fans by crossing the two and having that hybrid model so um, we've seen a lot of it so far and I think it's only going to become um, you know bigger and, and be a massive phenom phenomenon. But Alex, do you mind just sort of telling everyone a little bit about why it worked and what they've done right? You kind of said that, you know, that they, that's creating a blueprint. But just for those that haven't kind of experienced that, that hybrid, um, you know, to see it do well, can you tell us just a little bit? I mean, everyone loves music. I mean, like, there's, there's something for everyone. There's a genre for everyone. There's an instrumental for everyone. There's an instrument for everyone, like... As a singer, everyone's got a favourite singer. And in the gaming world, it's the same. And I think that's why it works so well. Like, how... And, and YouTube, to be honest. Like, there's, there's just been... That's been such a massive thing and such a such a pillar of so many of our lives like a lot of us were in that transition period where we didn't have internet we had you know this, this like weird dial-up situation that it progressed into and then then all of a sudden you could use your house phone and use your internet at the same time like we've kind of grown through these stages and i think that's why it's so it's just relatable and that's why it's so successful yeah i think it, it, you know the whole kind of transition i think from because ultimately immersive you know digital these are at the moment they, they've been sort of distinct forms but actually i think audiences are more and more asking you know they want they just want more and more i mean ultimately there's never end to you know what an audience wants or expects um you know i don't, I don't know maybe jock or, or pip what do you think about sort of you know that hybridity or that vr or do you think there's a place for that within what you do or do you envisage so? Do you envisage creating events in the future where that is something that's feasible? Because it's really expensive as well, and I think that's something that you know we're all very aware of. It, it's time-consuming. It's consp expensive. It's difficult to, 
you know, implement um, mm. as well. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think for to cover off the, the entirety of Art Tangent in, in a metaverse world wouldn't be right for us. That's, you know, we're very much about slopping through the mud, the cold, hard rock and roll grit of everything that's going on. But that said, I could see with, say, um, like our headline slots, slots that take place on the Thursday, Friday and Saturday night, there could be the opportunity to, to dip our toes into that metaverse there and perhaps provide a digital ticket. But again, I'll go back to my earlier point that that needs to be planned almost as a separate event. It needs to be considered independently yeah. of the festival itself. So we've spoken even before COVID about the possibility of a, a virtual ticket to come and see some of those key bands. But the biggest hurdle has been the cost to do that. But I think COVID has obviously pushed people into a more digital world. There's increasingly more and more companies doing it. The technology prices are you know, coming down. So at some point in the future, I think it will be a standard integration of any event. It's just, I think, in the same way as sustainability is a story, we've got to make sure that we aren't diluting the core reason for doing this event, which is getting people mm. in the audience um, having a great time listening to amazing music. Yeah. Um, but the digital world is, is an interesting one to explore. Excellent. Um, it's not, it's, um, I'm just going to say welcome to Louis. And um, Dittman, we'll let you catch your breath while Pip, you know, we're, we're just on the metaverse and VR and the expense of that and the cross fertilization of genres and about how we see that going in the future. Right. Um, I, I was just going to make a brief point that obviously with Glastonbury, millions and millions and millions of people watch Glastonbury on telly and always yeah. have done, so it's not, not a particularly new thing. And I know that in lockdown, uh, lots of different things have been tried and I'm not knocking the technology at all. I mean, augmented reality where you can wear glasses, where you can actually be on a dance floor, but you can enhance your experience and you can have everybody experience different things. There's definitely some really exciting stuff happening there with technology. Uh, but I do think it's going to be really interesting when everyone gets back out in the field at a festival again this year. I think people yeah. are going to be so relieved to be off their smartphones and their VR headsets for a bit and just actually in real life having that experience that they've missed. And I, I, I feel like I can pledge that from my experience that I've had yeah. uh, from touring the shows and, and also from working with an Aboriginal uh, nation that we did a show with in Australia. I, I do think it's very ancient need for people to gather together in, in real time. Yeah, definitely. We have, uh, you know, within our, uh, you know, it's a need, isn't it, within mm. to, to connect with people. So, uh, I don't know if you've caught your breath, this I'm, is Louis. I'm um, good to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you, do you, we're talking about how it feels in those different formats and what, what translates well, what, what um, you know, can it be cross-fertilised? Um, Louis is... Um, let Louis tell you who he is. I'm a theatre producer and uh, immersive uh, theatre production specialist. Um, I'm late for quite a topical reason. Just got off the plane from Las Vegas where we're looking at taking the Choir of Man that's currently running in the West End in a traditional theatre format, but we're looking at taking it and presenting it in an immersive format at one of the casino venues there. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, about what, what, what was different with that and what is different between like a you know, a theatrical kind of show or presentation, but also what that means, and also taking it over there and working, low, you know, working yeah, in course. a completely different territory. Well, so, so for us, often what we're looking at is, is how to make the form match the medium. It, it, we're saying, what's the best way to tell a certain story? And uh, for immersive uh, live production specifically, we're looking at stories where people want to be part of the action rather than just observe it. So 
the example that we like to use is, is, is Amelie the Musical, which we did in the West End, is, is a story about um, you know, a girl's singular, kooky, personal imagination. And if you were to be involved, if you were to have the audience involved in that, you break that world. Whereas when we do something like our Great Gatsby production, the audience want to be in the heart of that and affect it. And that's all about them having agency and being able to, to have an impact on it. So speaking to the VR point, I think in terms of cross-fertilizing live into the world of VR, you know, theatrical production, lot, lots of different types of live uh, production don't play so well purely on screen. But as soon as you introduce an element of, of agency where, for example, an audience member could choose, I'm going to follow that character or I'm going to follow that character or I'm going to give a letter to Jordan Baker at this moment and that has an impact on the way the story plays out then you start to get stuff that's more interesting for in, in the VR world and in, in the kind of on-screen versions of live events. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it's just really hard. And I think at the moment, while we're looking at the future, all of this is happening, but it's sort of our responsibilities to be making those changes. Um, I also want to ask about sort of, and back to you, Louis, just on that financial implication, because ultimately we, we've touched upon these points and about A, the cost sustainably, but the cost financially, um, you know, to all of these and how, how, you know, how on earth do we make it work? I mean, all of these things are so, just so expensive, but also against our own, you know, whether it's value of money or value of, you know, principles. Well, in terms of innovating into the, into the immersive event sector, um, just to speak to that area of it, um, it's a really tricky thing and we need, to be, we need to be really precise with the business model because if you take you know, uh, any, any traditional venue, whether it be a theatre or, or a conference centre, the infrastructure is already there and you come in and you supply what's going on stage. Whereas if you're taking this, um, this into the immersive sphere, you're usually taking a venue that's maybe not already set up for that. You've got the planning and the licensing and the, and the fire safety and the toilets and all of this, which then usually then involves you know, a set that is built all around the audience. And so the, the production value that's required on a kind of per head spend basis is so high. Um, so the way that we're trying to combat that is by setting up immersive specialist theatrical venues. So we have one uh, which is a temporary space in, in Mayfair at the moment called Immersive London, which is where Gatsby and our our Doctor Who uh, immersive show are running. And we're just about to open Peaky Blinders in, uh, in Camden, in a new venue that's a 15 year lease. So we'll be running that for multiple different immersive shows one after another. And, and it's just trying to find those efficiencies rather than reinvent the wheel the whole time. And that cost of Peaky Blinders, for an example, I mean, that, that's quite a huge cost. You've got like, it's, it's, you know, how many, you know, people a, involved, but actually that expectations, because you have less, you know, numbers. When, you know, say Alex is, to, you know, touring or whatever, or you're in a field, you've got a lot more, uh, yeah, you've got a significant, you know, you've got it's, working it's about, with numbers and you're working with less. And yeah, so the, the capacity on that show is about 250, and we do the show seven times a week. It costs about three million to set the show up, and, and, and then we have, um, you know, weekly running costs thereafter. But the intention is that some of that setup cost is then rolled on to whatever comes next in terms of getting the venue infrastructure running. And I think that's, that's one of the things in terms of innovating into these more um, immersive and integrated types of performances, trying to think long-term about how the infrastructure can, can remain in place after one show or the next. We're also moving towards the model of buying all of our lighting and sound equipment for every show 
um, after spending many, many years with like weekly rental packages being the absolute standard, but we're going into saying, well, how can we build something that's going to be more efficient over the long term? I think that raises an interesting, an interesting point just about venue responsibility. You know, and I think, uh, you know, you've talked about, you know, the, your relationships with, you know, who has the venue, because often it falls a lot on, on the promoter and those costs of bringing those things in. Um, Alex, what do you think just on that sort of responsibility? Because I know you mentioned to me before just about that diamond experience or, you know, of what that means and how you share that. Um, yeah, to be honest, most of the costs will fall on the promoter, but that to, like that's just the nature of the game, and um, we'll make that money back on ticket sales if the experience is good enough. So that's what we just try and um, kind of prioritise, like how can we best create an experience for our audience and go from there. I mean, we work with artists from inception up until, you know, arena and stadium level. So we see all kinds of different overheads and, and it's, it's forever chopping and changing. I mean, you've seen the last two years, it's been an experience for us in itself. So we never really know what's going to happen, but we're willing to take that risk. And a lot of those formats now that we, you know, we're talking, we, we're all sort of looking to the future, but some of those formats have been outdated or pigeonholed, you know, in a way. It's kind of, yeah, it feels like things are really different. What do you want to see happen? Or what, what, are you, what are you creating that you think would be really exciting? Well, um, one thing we are working on, Speaking of outdated things, like we, you know, we were kind of speaking about genres yep. and how that can kind of pigeonhole different artists. We're working on just making our events more of a fusion in terms of genres and, and kind of when we're doing multiple things, trying to cross over different genres and seeing how that works. Because we've had like rock artists and rap artists collaborate and it's been an amazing experience. So we just want to put a lot of more, you know, effort into doing that more. And, and that makes events more inclusive as well, you know, because we genres and songs are just uh, a whole multitude of different things these days and it's and I think that's really it's really nice and it's progressive and what do you feel you know that you want to sort of like make a difference sort of like going forward what are the sort of significant things that you're looking at and that you want to do that you want to share um, to be honest, at this stage, after two years of not running the festival, I want to be knee-deep in mud with a cold cider in my hand, surrounded by people that are <laughs> drunk, happy, and enjoying good music. Um, the, I think the changes that I'd, I'd look to make at Arc Tangent are not going to be significantly noticeable to the audience. It is about that optimising experience, but it could be the simplicity of moving a set of toilets from there to there, just in terms of like lines of sight, the user uh, consumer journey through the festival, um, how you can optimise that experience that, that people have. Um, something that we had started working on prior to 2019 and has become even more important is we're looking at um, the welfare and accessibility of Art Tangent. Um, accessibility has always been something that's been very important to me and when the festival was a lot smaller, I could deal with that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But as we're growing, we're now building a team around that. Yeah. Um, and our site, for example, is designed so that our information point, our welfare hub and first aid are very close together. Because normally if somebody's in a situation where they're in need, they could just be run down and tired from working too long or hours, or they could have drunk too much. Normally, it, one of those three services will be the person that inter intercepts that person um, and might need the support of the others. Um, one thing we've noticed with Arc Tangent is we tend to have quite a high number of people come with autism, which is a very complicated um, it's a very complicated situation because not all cases are the same. 
So what we're looking to do is provide sensory deprivation hubs so people can literally go into a blacked out tent that's in the quietest part of the site, go and get themselves a cup of tea or a bottle of water, sit down, chill out until they're ready to face the chaos of a festival. Um, we're looking at introducing autism backpacks, which will include um, uh, uh, like earmuffs and we'll have a bottle of water and sunglasses and just key things that will help reduce some of that sensory overload, which means that experience can be enjoyable. So the, 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 the big flashing heavy lights of a headliner for some people is a brilliant experience, but for some people that's utterly terrifying. Yeah. So for me, changing our tangent is walking that consumer journey from very, very different perspectives and see if it doesn't work for all, what do we need to do to make it work for all? Mm. So it's, again, the, the event on the outside won't look any different, but hopefully it then caters better for our audience and their, their individual requirements. I really like that. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I think it's also in keeping with the whole narrative and the storytelling, which is key, really. It's that and that consumer experience. And I just wondered, actually, I'm going to ask you something. It seems quite random. Um, I want to ask you about NFTs and carbon footprint. About it. is that is that in a way that we can raise money? You know, um, through NFTs. Is that something you've thought about in your experience or not? Pip. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We're we're about to dive into that into that world. Um, the uh, it, obviously it, it's new enough that I feel nowhere near a level of expertise that's that ready to start spending the money on it that is needed to be. But it has become something which in each new investment um, raise for each new production, we're including an allowance for it. And at the moment, I'm treating it in my own head as if it's a straightforward piece of merchandise. I know it's going to be a lot more complicated than that to put out. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't have any operational experience of it, but it has from this point forward become something that's being included in every budget. Excellent. Um, I, I also want to try... I look forward to learning. <laughs> I know, it's, it's such a big about. thing. It's a question that everyone keeps yeah. asking me within work. It's like, you know, are we going to do NFTs? And it's like, and what format will they take? And what does that mean? Um, I also want to give the audience an opportunity to ask any questions. Um, don't ask me what an NFT is. No, it's, <laughs> it's fine. Just a, a very quick question about architecture. Could the panel give us a, a dreaming uh, insight into the stage of the next 50 years? I mean, anything to, to reinvent the stage architecturally. I think that's yeah. one for you, Pip. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what, from the beginning, that's what we've been um, trying to really push and just remix what, what a stage is. Like I said earlier, earlier about the audience. Audience is a massive part of it. That's why we do things in 360, because you, you actually, well, not only can you get a lot of people much closer to the uh, performer, but also wherever you're stood, you're looking at at least 50% of the audience facing you, so you're really part of it. It's quite an inclusive thing. Uh, in fact, probably the best invention we had of any of our stages was when we went from a 360 stage in the middle to actually building a giant tripod and suspending the performance above, because then the audience were right underneath, and suddenly the heart of the show was the audience, and that so that added a lot to it. Um, yeah, augmented reality is something that I'm really interested in, how far you can go with the glasses and the headsets, especially in a 360 immersive environment, because you can look everywhere and you can have stuff coming from all around you. Um, yeah, the, I mean, 360 sound is, is a whole new thing within uh, stage architecture. Um, and yeah, going into slightly more wacky, arty kind of world, I guess if we're talking more permanent event sites, then you can talk more permanent stages. 
then the stages can, you know, you can really go to town with, with doing amazing stuff. And there's always incredible, like, bits of oil rigs being decommissioned and cranes and, you know, all sorts of stuff. People can start to get really, really playful with what they build. Great question. Has anyone else got any questions? Hello. Um, it's a question for Pip, actually. Um, is there any... Um, uh, are we any closer to actually getting to a point of having um, uh, to remove the generators, like diesel generators, from powering festivals in your, in your kind of uh, experience? Is it coming towards the um, battery-powered staging, or is it more... I've got... Yeah, well, well what, what I understand of it is um, the best thing you can do is be on the grid. We work quite a lot with Dale Vince from Ecotricity, and, and if you can get on the grid, we, we, we designed it, we've got a Tesla coil show, which is like 4 million volts of electricity, these guys emit it out of their hands, and we're yeah, working to run that on solar power. Thank you. And it's a tricky thing, because we, we want to turn up in city centres and take a load of solar power and make it part of this performance and have this real visceral experience. And, and that, to me, has a real environmental value, because it helps educate people about electricity and where it comes from. But the reality is, <laughs> If we could get our tether cars to just plug in to the nearest shop around the corner, which obviously isn't that simple because they're very high power, but we could do something like that. That's the most sustainable way of doing it because then you're on a big grid. So, um, yeah, does that sort of answer? answer yeah, I mean, there? it was um, in terms of just, um, I mean, in general, staging, like when you're putting on a, a main stage, mm. it currently it's, it's churning out you know, fuel, basically, or, mm. or, or emissions. Um, yeah. And I just wonder whether, if in your eyes, on you guys there, is there any consideration in terms of how close we will come to removing diesel generators from festival site? Totally. Well, we, well, we, we run off biodiesel generators. Um, I mean, that's not a perfect solution. There is a big, there is a bit of a movement. I don't know if it's public at all, but at Glastonbury, trying to trying to work on solar power for those stages. Um, but again, it's all about the grid, really, because even so, even solar power, you need big banks of batteries. The mining for the batteries is quite destructive, and blah blah blah. So it's, it's oh, perfect. It's a constant, constant, constant balance, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. Um, has anyone else got any questions? I think we've overrun a little bit. Um, okay. Um, well, thank you very, very much for attending the session on the future of events. And um, thank you very much to our panel, to Louis, to Alex, to Jock, and to Pip. Thank you. Thank you. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.